Hi and welcome. My name is Ephraim and this is the Bear Yourself podcast. Um, today's podcast is with the veteran or the Minister for Veteran Affairs, Johnny Mercer. Uh, I was fortunate to meet Johnny recently at the Festival of Remembrance or, or around the Festival of Remembrance. Uh, and he's very kindly offered to come uh, and talk to me about various things, obviously some of which uh, have, imp- have had a huge impact on me and the loss of my son or our son James in Afghanistan in 2013. So I hope you enjoy it. I hope you enjoy what Johnny's got to say. Uh, he's had a, a genuinely um, really interesting life and career uh, and I hope you enjoy the podcast and thanks for watching. Johnny Mercer, thank you for joining us. Pleasure. We met briefly recently at the Remembrance or the Festival of Remembrance build-up uh, and thank you for uh, offering to come and have a chat with us on the, on the podcast here on behalf of Strongmen. Thank you. I just wanted to find out a little bit more about you really and start with some basic stuff is what's, what does an MP do? What's your sort of daily routine now you're a big growing up in a suit? What is an average day? Oh look, the, the truth is there's no average day, right? So... You kind of got overlaying and overlapping responsibilities. Um, you will, uh, your constituency MP, so you're elected by your constituents, you know, roughly 70,000 of them, 80,000 of them in your hometown or county or wherever it may be. And you're here primarily to represent them, um, but clearly you have other duties as well. Um, and I'm also a government minister, I'm a cabinet minister, uh, and I'm responsible for the UK's veterans affairs. So. Um, when I'm in London, generally speaking, I'm either working on that or uh, supporting the government in its programme for government, um, you know, whether it's bringing in legislation, um, whether it's uh, winning votes in the House, uh, whatever it may be, to, to make sure that government can occur and governing can happen. Uh, so generally up here, sort of Monday to Thursday, Thursday night to go back to uh, Plymouth. Uh, and then Friday and Saturday, I'll be in Plymouth. And then Sunday, I'll spend a bit of time with my kids and then... The whole thing starts again. So, yeah, it's pretty relentless. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, it's pretty, it's pretty hard work. But at, at the same time, a, a sort of deep privilege to be able to represent um, all those great people who live in a city that I've called home for 20 years now. And in terms of for your own personal well-being and how you look after yourself, commuting can be a bit of a pain, and obviously eating Greggs and whatever can be a bit of a pain as well. So, how do you look after you? yourself i mean you're a, you're a veteran as, as well which usually means there's some form of physical exercise or something you like to do you, do you manage when you're up there to do that sort of thing or is it a case of wishing you would be able to do more of that well interestingly i mean i'm slightly going through a transition on this at the moment so previously i've been absolutely religious about going out and thrashing myself in london um and i found that as a really good way of sort of coping mentally with quite a lot of stress but as I've done that, I've realized like how much that makes you eat um, and how, mu- how much sort of crap you end up eating as well. Because obviously you can't just eat good West Country vegetables in London. You end up buying all sorts of rubbish. Um, and so I'm trying actually to go through a transition where I do less fizz and eat less, right? So that I'm healthier and I don't die by the time I'm 50. Um, we'll see how that goes. Um, but I find that physical exercise is a really profound part of maintaining a mental balance and look public life is difficult public life is very difficult it's very challenging you do your best you're never going to please everybody of course um and for me the stuff around veterans affairs is is a calling um and there's lots to do, lots to be done and i guess 
on the courses, I want to kind of find out how you got from where you are to where you are now. I mean, I know you had a, a, an unusual upbringing, not a million miles from me. I think you're Sussex, Eastbourne, is it East Sussex? Uh, one of a large family with, a, with, a, with an unusual upbringing. But what drew you to the military? Because I know you served for around 11 or 12 years and I think three tours of Afghanistan. What, what drew you there from your background? Which I'd say maybe a little bit unconventional having no... Um, family members served before you necessarily. What 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 made that happen? Look, I mean, um, I definitely grew up in a, a fairly sort of complex uh, environment uh, when I was a boy, um, and for me, the military held a lot of attractiveness in terms of a new environment, in terms of uh, playing sport, in terms of being in a community of active men and women, and um, the sort the whole lifestyle and the camaraderie really attracted me. I mean, I wasn't. One of those who dressed up as a soldier and you know went around playing soldiers and all the rest of it. I mean, the idea for me was to join up, have a really good time, and then leave before you know before we went fighting or anything like that. But 9/11 happened when I went through training, and obviously that changed what it meant to be in the military for people. I mean, in particular in my trade, which was terminal controlling of uh, indirect weapon systems. So um, it became very technical. You know, we used to just have guns and so on. Now we've got missiles and bombs and helicopters and jets and all the rest of it. And I was responsible for the sort of target end work on that. Um, ended up serving in 2006, uh, 2008 to nine, and then 2010 as well. Um, and um, yeah, it was uh, it was an interesting experience. Mm. And how did married life happen? Is that post or during or pre? During, really. I mean. Uh, you never know when you're going to meet your wife, do you? Um, and uh, yeah, it was just before my last tour, and my last tour was was probably the most difficult as well. Um, so obviously a fairly chaotic time, right? Uh, and I know that a lot of service families and veterans will, uh, you know, understand the sort of pressures and stress you go through. I mean, uh, we're not unique, uh, my wife and I, uh, in that respect. Um, but yeah, we ha- had children and then, then got married and just had another baby who's two. And, you know, you do your best, don't you? Um, but it's, uh, yeah, three kids, three young children. My wife's a bit of a superstar and keeps all that stuff in check. Well, I'm, I'm guessing she's been used to being, not absence, the wrong word, but working away, whether it be in the military, whether it be in Parliament. And I know you've had a um, an interesting few years in politics, is that the right word of saying it? A sort of up and down career in politics, I suppose, but we could come to that a little bit later. But I wanted to sort of dial into a particular event. I know it's been a bit of a life changer to you. And if I can take you back to the 8th of June, uh, 2010, and Mark Chandler, yeah. and I wanted to talk to you about that particular operation. Yeah. What happened, how it happened, how you felt, what impact that had on you, Um because I think, I mean, we had a similar experience when our son James died in October 2013. Um, and I don't think, I, I may be wrong, you might correct me here. When when it's when you're physically in that event and when it's happening, um, it, I, I can imagine it's a very strange experience to what we find thousands of miles away when we get those sort of knocks on the door uh, and how that really has an impact on uh, the rest of my life it's literally changed in that heartbeat really and I can like you I can track it back to September the 11th it's when my life changed because it was ultimately as a result of that that James found his way to Afghanistan all those years later uh, and he was just a a youngster at the time that it happened so how, how what happened how did it happen how did that 
make how did that feel how what was your relationship then with uh, Mark's parents I think both both have sadly since passed away so what sort of an impact does that have on you I guess even to this day and how do you sort of process that stuff yeah I mean first yeah it's a massive question I mean the first thing I, I'd say is pay tribute to, to James um, people like me are the the lucky ones really who um, who came home from that conflict um, largely in one piece um, it was a it was certainly a sort of life defining time um, I think you know if you think that period before and after uh, 2006 to 2010, when 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 we were really wading through difficult times, um, you know, I remember joining an army that hadn't hadn't really been involved in that stuff, right? And so it was it was all about Northern Ireland and you know counting rounds in Northern Ireland and uh, um, and suddenly we found ourselves in this uh, in this environment where um, we were. It's not that we were unprepared. It's just nothing, I think, really prepares you for the total chaos of operating in small teams uh, in contact with the enemy twice a day for seven months. Um, and uh, particularly, on, yeah, on the 2010 tour, um, I mean, I was in a patrol base that um, had just been built. So it was the first summer in that patrol base. And... Obviously, they weren't massively keen, the old Talibs, on uh, patrol bases. And so they would kind of leave you be until the harvest happened. They'd harvest all their crop. And literally that night, all hell broke loose. And this went on for months and months to the point where, uh, you know, they were like trying to jump over the wire on a Sunday morning and you're fighting them in your pants and your body. <laughs> um you know, so, I mean, that, that's the sort of context of the environment you're in. Um, I mean, what actually happened that morning is that another standard patrol, you know, I went on patrol twice a day for seven months. I was a fires controller. Um, I had a small team with me of uh, three, four, four people. Um, one of them left pretty early doors. Uh, it wasn't really for him. Um, then there was uh, myself, a guy called Lance Bourbon and Mark Chandler, and a guy called Baz Barrett. Um, and basically they, they were kind of specialists. So Baz was a JTAC, he did the air. Mark was, uh, did mortars and artillery, and I was the sort of junior officer in charge of the team. I would speak to the ground commander, ask for, you know, whatever effect it was they wanted, and I would, I would try and deliver that. Um, and, yeah, we would, you know, we'd go, go on a patrol, and often I'd be patrolling, right, with, with junior soldiers, so corporals or sergeants who'd be the ground commander, and I'd just be in charge of the fires. Um, on this particular day, uh, just a standard patrol pushed into uh, an area called the Jungle, which is 31 West, which is uh, it was kind of the heart of darkness at that time. Pushed in pretty standard. And um, we heard, obviously, you have ICOM chatter, which is uh, basically um, insurgents talking on radios that you can intercept and listen to. And we reckon we knew roughly where they were, and they were going to whack us on our way back out. So we were going to get in the house and kill them first. Um, and as we were closing with that enemy position, um, uh, we were engaged at pretty close quarters. Uh, and I was with Mark at the time, uh, Mark Chandler, um, and uh, both me and him were crossing a track, uh, and we were engaged, uh, and uh, he was uh, shot in the face. 
Um, and, and obviously when that happens, all hell breaks loose, they try and encircle you, they try and cut you off, and you've really got to kind of earn your pay as a junior officer. Um, and uh, yeah, we had to uh, kind of like fighting evacuation, fighting Kazivak, um, uh, trying to make sure that we weren't cut off um, and we weren't surrounded. A uh, very difficult day, all the while dealing with the trauma of um, Mark dying. So, look, you're, you're facing, so that's the context and that's the specifics of it. Um, how does it make you feel? Um, look, I mean, you're a young guy, right? So it's easier to deal with this stuff, I think, when you're younger. Um, it's very, for me, the dynamic always changed when I had children. So on one of my, my last two, I had children by the time I went on that tour. And that, that, that definitely changed the dynamic. Uh, it's very, very frightening. It's very frightening. Um, uh, it, it can be confusing, um, but you can kind of keep a lid on that by your own actions. Um, for me, I mean, I was a young man, right? And there was an element of it that I thought was awesome. Uh, the kind of leveling up that combat brings, right? So rank is just irrelevant. It's like a piece of embroidery. It's literally all about the character of the man. Um, and I love environments like that because they're very honest. Um, so there's an aspect of me that I absolutely loved it, you know, and I went through those years and, you know, there, there were times I loved it. But, and that's why I joined the military and we, we shouldn't be afraid of that, right? And shouldn't run away from it. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but obviously that defined my life, really. I never, I never expected I'd become what I am today in terms of, you know, the UK's first cabinet minister for veterans, set up the Office for Veterans Affairs, design all these programs, you know, shape UK veterans provision um, for the longer term. I never, I never thought that would be me. It's just, I really struggled, I guess, when I was out there, I struggled between, you know, the difference between politicians who would come out and, you know, say nice things, but ultimately you were like gaffer taping Kevlar plates to a Wimmick. Um, and then for me, it really hit home when you got home, right? And some of their care, particularly the guys with prosthetics, was really, really bad. There were no dedicated mental health care pathways. The way some of the families got trapped, you know, writing to fathers and spelling their kids' name wrong. I mean, your lawyer fell asleep in your inquest, right? For me, like, there was a massive gap between where the MAD and the government was and the British people were when it came to how we felt about these people who sacrificed so much for the freedoms and privileges we enjoy. And in 2012, actually, I was taking the commando course at the moment, so people who wanted to be commandos and join, join my regiment. And during that year, more veterans killed themselves than were killed in the conflict. And there's a particular case of a guy called Dan Collins, who took himself up to Sending Bridge in Wales where we do all that training, miserable place, you know, horrible place. And he made a video for his mum just before he died. And he sort of looked into the camera and he was like, I'm so sorry. He knew the pain he was going to cause, right? I'm so sorry. There's just, like, nowhere to go. And I was like, that's it. I'm going to change it. I'm going to change the country. And it's like a mad ambition, right? And... Um, I've just been riding this massive, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. I have huge imposter syndrome. The idea I'm doing this is ridiculous. But we've made massive progress. You know, I came in in 2015 
gave my speech, I talked about people like you, you know, who's, in my view, given the greatest sacrifice on the altar of this nation's freedom to lose your son or daughter as the result of a political decision, because these are not wars where they're in the channel, right? These are political choices. And to lose your son or daughter as a result of that is a pain that I could not comprehend. And I am absolutely determined that we will treat people like you and the families of the wounded and injured in a way that they deserve. And that has driven everything I've done. So look, I'm not a, I, I, I never voted before as an MP. I, I'm not like a diehard politician type chap, um, but I am absolutely determined this country will do better and the government will do better when it comes to looking after uh, families like yours and um, those who are seriously injured. And to be fair, I mean, yeah, you're right. It's been a really turbulent year, right? But if you look at the strategic progress we've made, you know, we established the UK's first office for veterans affairs. Uh, the idea that the veterans minister would be in the cabinet and report directly to the prime minister, all this stuff just didn't happen. And then the knock-on effects from that, designing things like Op Courage, Op Fortitude, I was doing the veterans trauma network today. You know, we've done some really great stuff. So of course there's further to go. But I do know that um, the experiences of, certainly that I experienced in 2006, and, you know, my friends, um, that will never happen again. And that, that's why I get up and go to work every day, right? Thank you, Johnny. I think it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a really difficult one for us because as, as the families, if you like, we kind of, we fall in between the cracks a little bit sometimes because we're not, we are a military family, but we're not a military family any longer when obviously not veterans and many moons ago i sort of thought to myself i'd love to do something as well but where on earth do you start with these things you know to provide something for the families because when you look at nations like the states where they have the, the gold star families um i think it's a great it has a great impact on the society because i mean on remembrance day people are clapping us but the following day we're just normal people who fall victims to road rage or people bumping into you in Tesco as if you're you don't exist and that sometimes makes it sound like people should bow down and that's not what I'm saying but sometimes I think the greatest thing that we lose is a purpose when we lose particularly when you lose a child unexpectedly which obviously combat is although I often say to people obviously there's always a risk and we understand that but there's never really a comprehension that, that we we would ever lose James but you do lose a purpose almost instantly. Everything I've ever worked for. We had James, I was 18, and Sharon, who's my wife, was 17. I mean, we've had them since we were teenage children. We had Yasmin when we were 20. So our life has always been built around having children. And as I got to older, as I mean, I was 41 when James died and, and Sharon was 40. It's that life has just begun sort of thing. So we we sacrificed our teens and early 20s. We didn't go on holiday. We had no money. We lived in a caravan for the first few years. So when we lost James, we lost a huge part of our lives and, and, and it impacts every single day. And it's had a massive impact, not just on, on us, but also on our daughter. I think one of the things that often gets forgotten is, is that sort of sibling loss. I mean, Yasmin joined the army after James died. Um, she joined the Royal Army Medical Corps and she really changed her life, totally changed. She was in retail. Uh, she went, joined the army. She left the army. She then went into professional sports. She's now got a, 
a master's degree in osteopathy so it completely changed her life and it's changed our lives but it's that last that loss of purpose which is it's still something that I sort of struggle with because we have all these in, incredible experiences most of which are very very challenging and difficult but you don't know what to do with them and you don't know where to go with them because as I say sometimes you often feel that you sort of fall through the cracks as the families which is obviously something that you're looking to change which a uh, huge thanks to you on that and I I do recall um, he was a Welsh guard, wasn't he, Dan Collins? And I do recall that happening um, and the video for his moment. It, it, it truly is heartbreaking. I think it's well known in the Falklands. More have taken their lives since the Falklands that died in combat during the Falklands. And I'm sure it will be the same of most conflicts that will happen ever since. And there is a duty of care to those veterans. But again, sometimes, I guess, as as the families, we kind of feel a little bit lost and, and not left out is the wrong word, but there is... It is very challenging where you go. And with the fall of Afghanistan recently, obviously that had a huge impact, again, on guys like yourself that have served out there, the veteran community, but a massive impact on us as the families because that, that question always comes back. And it's not even so much through us, it's from other people. It's like, was it worth it? It wasn't worth it. And of course, that's a really churlish thing to say, in my opinion, because whilst it wasn't worth our individual sacrifice and the sacrifice of those who have been hugely impacted, it made a massive change, albeit for a relatively short period of time, in an area of the world that was really um, a really difficult place to be. And I think it had a huge impact on, on the, uh, the Afghani people. I mean, all you have to do is look now at what's happening since the Taliban took back control in terms of uh, females and, and all the other bits and bobs. So it's hugely challenging. So... And I think also now that the campaigns, obviously we're no longer in Iraq or Afghanistan, um, people forget, people forget very quickly and it becomes just a, a sort of part of old history. So people do forget that there's still people that are looking to cope with these things. And I think there's probably been a huge impact on some of the military charities in terms of the donations they've received. Um, charities like Help for Heroes who kind of shot to prominence during the campaigns in the Middle East, I'm guessing now are finding it very difficult to get funding. So in terms of the government side of things, what what what's what's the sort of future? I know you, you've spoken about Op Courage and Op Fortitude, which has just been released for the for the to try and um, help on the homeless veteran sort of side of things. But what's your long term goal legacy? What do you where do you want us to be with that? Do you want us to look at countries like New Zealand and Australia and the States and be sort of more in line with that kind of care? Because a, a lot of the charities and the churches pick up a lot of the slack with a lot of the stuff that needs to be picked up rather than maybe government uh, and obviously with the huge challenges on government in terms of the finances <clears throat> where where do you think we're likely to go with that in all honesty because everything is hugely challenging at the moment i deal with a lot of families who lost people out there um because um they really struggle to contextualize it and to answer that question like when you talk about devoting your entire lives as young parents to your children that's what I did right that's what I've done and I can't even cope with the thought of that yet alone what has happened what I what I would say to those to the families of those who died though was that it's 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 not a waste right it's not a waste what I saw people do out there, like it, it, it's kind of an amphitheater of humanity, right? So you see the really bad parts. Like I saw 
I saw this guy beat another bloke to death with a spade over a bloody field, right? I had a guy come in one day, hand me a bloody rag, and it was his baby daughter who'd fallen off his motorbike. He just did not give a shit. And then you had these people operating in the military who just demonstrated the most selfless, courageous, honest uh, behavior that humans can, humans can do. And, you know, you spend your whole life trying to do that, right? What do you want to be? You want to be a good person. You want to think of other people. You want to be courageous. And these guys are at the zenith of those human qualities. And that's where it came to the fore, right? It's sometimes easy to be courageous and kind in the UK. You know, buy someone at McDonald's who's sleeping rough or whatever. What about taking the Valen off him and going and doing 300 metres on the Valen because he just can't take it anymore? Right? That's courage. And that's friendship and that's camaraderie. And that's, that's the kind of zenith of the human existence. Um, and it was not a waste because James got to operate in that environment. And it had a profound and lifelong effect on people like me and drives me to this day, right? Why do I do what I do? Because uh, I think these people are incredible and, um, uh, and they're the best of, of the nation. Um, and I think the nation knows them better. And that's why I do what I do. Um, you, can't, you can't control international events. You cannot control what happens in Afghanistan. We could control at the time. Okay, after 9-11, and we, we removed the Taliban, we then went in, you know, 2006, pushed down into Helmand. We did provide for 20 years a semblance of normality. And there will be a generation of people in Afghanistan who had that experience, for whom hopefully there's that kernel of hope that they will get through this period and that time might return. Um, what do I want it to be like in this country? I don't really want it to be like America or Australia or New Zealand. Um, I want to take all the best practice from all of these countries and deliver it here in the UK. Right? So are we ever going to get to a stage where people stand up and clap veterans on the plane first? No, because we don't want to do that. Right? Well, that's not in our culture. It makes people like me feel incredibly un uneasy. But are we going to get to a place where we stop talking about how much we're doing for veterans and veterans this and that and actually ask what is it like to be a veteran in the UK today right so you hear of all these brilliant programs but you've left the military you're five years out you don't have any mates who are officers you start hitting problems what's it like for you to be a veteran how do you access op courage how do you access op fortitude and then conversely what does it feel like to be a family or a dad like you of someone who died in that conflict. What does it genuinely feel like every year? And that's what I want to change. Um, and I'll be honest, I'm behind the curve where I want to be with families. Right? Uh, I have ideas in that space. Um, you know, I'd like to write to every family every year. If only just to say we don't forget, right? We don't forget. You sacrifice for the nation, and every day your kid is not there. Every day. Or, you, you know write to a wife, your husband, every morning he's not there at breakfast. And as Prime Minister, or whatever it may be, I respect that and we're grateful for your service. Things like that um, I would like to do. Um, but as you can imagine, you know, we start from a really low base and um, I'm doing everything I can to catch up. 
Yeah, and I think it's often it's the little things like that that make a huge difference because, I mean, it's it's nine years, it'll be ten years since we lost James in October. And obviously, James is... Um, everyone that we knew has, has moved on, has retired, has just gone back round. And, and, and you do lose track with the, reg, the various regiments and the chain of command and they don't even necessarily know about James in our case or whoever it happens to be but the one consistent is obviously people like yourselves hopefully or or government and I think something like that would make a huge difference we get a card from a a, a, a charity called Forces Support around Remembrance and it's just nice because yep. they send a card thinking about you that sort of thing and it makes a big difference because people don't the general population don't, and I didn't either until we lost James. They don't have a, an, an empathy about what it is and what it feels like. And you're right, it's every single day. And I truly know that I was having this discussion at the Remembrance thing. We were fortunate to have a, a colleague of James's, Dan, accompany us. And I said, I know without any question that if James had have known he was going to die on that operation, he still would have gone and yeah. he wouldn't have changed the way he operated. And that's exactly what, what you were saying. And it, it sounds, I, I was reading some bits and pieces around Mark before we spoke and they say a similar sort of characters. I know you wrote about him that he was incredibly selfless and he had volunteered to put the bins out as well as he would to go on a patrol. And that's exactly the same with James. The things that we've heard back from various colleagues, you know, somebody he helped someone pick up stones in the car park as punishment, which wasn't his punishment, but he just didn't want the guy to be doing it on his own. That sort of side of things. And they truly are the greatest, uh, in my opinion, of our nation and they represent such um such strong character and integrity and all of these things that i think maybe aren't so prevalent in today's society so in terms of your side obviously because there's it's been the last couple of years have been difficult with the with the the ministerial position almost like the josie Mourinho sort of thing you're there and not there and there and not there so for people like us how does that work so if if for example in the next election um the current government gets replaced by someone does that mean that you will be replaced or yeah it does i mean you know how do you deal with it the, the way i've always that i've always dealt with it and you know first couple of years i was in politics i found it pretty difficult but you just got to remember who you're here for right so i'm here for people like you i'm here for you know the communities at plymouth and the veterans and, and service family community that i've made very clear all along and i think the key is just to be consistent right just be consistent. So politics is very fickle. The tide, the crowd, it's very fickle, right? And all you can control is yourself. And it comes back to, like, the people we served with, you know, the character, the character of these individuals. It all comes down to character. And you've just got to be consistent so that when, you, when the tide does turn and you are reappointed, for example, as has happened to me, people know your values and your character and your uh, what you're there for doesn't change and I think um, because ultimately I'm not here for myself right I'm not in this for myself politics is is not a good sport right I'm away from the family all the time people will say horrible things about me you can't make everyone happy um, awful right but I'm not in it for myself so I don't really care about that right I'm in it because I care what people like you think what the seriously injured veterans think, um, what people in Plymouth think, and you just got to focus on that, right? And keep your keep your bearings on that, and just do your best. And there were forces well, well outside your control. 
yeah. you can't do anything about. With in your position with the background that you have, do you, th- do you think there's sometimes a danger just picking up or something? That you're almost too emotionally involved, so it becomes uh, it, it drives every single part of your being. Because obviously, as you say, being an MP is hard enough as it is, but being the veterans or the first veterans minister adds that complexity to it. So with that emotional commitment that you have, which is huge, because it, it's not just a job to you, it's almost like a vocation. I mean, I'm guessing that in in the recent reshuffling of bits and bobs, when when you were, um, whatever the words, I don't like to use the, the S word, but when you were relieved Sacked, of your you position. Can say it, you I can say don't, yeah, it, but you, but, twice, I'm getting used it, to it. It's a horrible word, I hate it. So, But when that happened, the impact that that must have had on you would be beyond what it would be for other ministers, let's say. Yeah, and that's completely fair and right. And that, that's double-edged because in some ways you, I should take it better, right? And uh, um, and uh, that's my fault and I take responsibility for that. On the other hand, it makes my job easier, right? Because, because like I said before, because you're not in it for yourself. You're in it for other people. What I found is that you will kind of go further, right? And you will ask for more and you'll keep pushing and keep driving because you're not doing it for yourself. If you're doing it for yourself, like when you're in the military doing an arduous course and you push yourself, push yourself, push yourself, you're doing it for yourself, you can go quite a lot further than you think you can. What I've worked out is when you're doing it for other people, you can go even further because you just don't care about the, about the, the impact it has on you. And in what I've had to do in the veteran space, I found that quite helpful. Okay, yeah, because the veteran community can be difficult, can be challenging. Obviously, there's a... Mate, the veterans community is extremely difficult at times. Yeah. But the broad body, I must say, the broad body is fantastic, right? Mm. You will always yeah. get your outliers. Um, and some of them will be very damaged and very vulnerable. So you've got to be careful how you pick around it. But Johnny, thank you very much. Mate, it's a pleasure. And look, uh, you're a hero. I can't imagine what you've been through... Um, you know, you're the reason I get out of bed every day. So you've got to stay in touch and uh, keep us on the straight and narrow, okay? 100% don't you worry about that. We will do. Thank you. Really do appreciate it, mate.